God is good all the time. Welcome to everybody joining us online and our campuses at Collinsville, Maryville, and Millstadt. We're so glad you're joining us. Welcome back to Philippians. I'm going to give you a 30-second kind of catch-up history lesson. No need to thank me. I'm happy to do it. In 356 BC, a village in northern Greece called Crenides was renamed for Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Some 400 years later, Philippi was a thriving Roman colony. It had a teeming middle class, lightly taxed, very loyal to Rome people lived in Philippi. If you wonder how big it was, probably had about 7,500 residents at the time. And when Paul took the exit ramp off the massive east-west Roman superhighway called the Via Ignatia, that's what he walked into. As we continue to profile this letter, you need to remember on one hand, Paul has great affection for the church to whom he writes, and on the other hand, his future is uncertain at best. Paul writes to instruct the church in how to have joy in all circumstances. So what I can tell you right now, he's saying it's all about your attitude. It's all about your attitude. Attitude is defined as a settled way of thinking or feeling. We might call it our emotional default. You know, you can kind of change your behaviors for a period of time if you try real hard, but if something inside you doesn't change, you'll always go back to what you were because that's who you are. Our attitude is sort of this emotional default that we all have. I've noted throughout my life that attitudes are more caught than taught, and they are something we choose, not something that's chosen for us. I don't think attitudes are hereditary, nearly as much as they are environmental. That being said, I know some families where almost everybody has a positive attitude, all of them. They are optimistic, upbeat, hardworking, industrial. They are what we would call in Southern Illinois people with a good name. They link good outcomes to hard work and good decisions. That's just how they roll. And conversely, I know of some other families where absolutely no one has a good attitude. None of them. They have a bad name. They are negative, lazy, critical of everyone but themselves. And they think successful people are just lucky somehow, like a person that wins the lottery. Despite it all, I don't think attitude is a matter of genetics. I think it's first a matter of what we know and then at some point, we're going to have to take ownership of our own life, and it's going to be a matter of what we choose. When I was a 22-year-old, newly minted junior high history teacher, I could not believe the attitudes of many of my students. I was just shocked. I mean, their attitudes toward education and life in general were beyond any level of comprehension I had. A lot of these kids didn't do their homework. They didn't pay attention in class, and they didn't study for tests, and yet they seemed utterly shocked that they made failing grades. 
It was, it was the most mysterious thing in the world to them. Trying to convince them that they had some role to play in their own academic success or lack thereof was truly a daunting task. And as I taught history, what I really tried to do was link decisions we make to outcomes. Just linking decisions to outcomes. With a lot of these kids, if they passed the test, I would say, hey, you did really well. They'd say, oh, that test was easy. If they failed a test, I said, you should have studied more. No, 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 that test was hard. Their perception of life at 13 years old seemed to be that all of it was out of their control. The relationship between inputs and outcomes was totally lost on them. And I remember thinking to myself, kid, uh, this kind of thinking is going to get you absolutely nowhere in life. Nowhere. I was truly mystified by the attitudes of my students until the first parent-teacher conference. And when I met their parents, I understood entirely. They learned this stuff at home. The tragedy is that it's really hard to unlearn things you learn as a child. It's really hard to unlearn things that you learn as a child. At the end of the day, we all have to take responsibility for our own decisions and our own lives. I told more than one of them, kid, if you're going to have any shot at a good life, you're going to have to learn how to think differently. Most never did. The handful of kids that did represent the true successes I feel like I had when I was a teacher and a coach. Our attitudes are choices we make, not dispositions we have. They are not things we inherit. We can go out, put in the hard work, and achieve, or we can spend our lives frustrated that a better life is not possible for us. Like students all taking identical tests, I've noticed that people with good and bad attitudes have roughly the same amount of stuff to deal with in their lives. The difference is found in how they prepare for it and how they approach it. The choices we make concerning our attitudes don't just affect us. That's the other piece. It doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone who touches your life. But even more important, it affects your children and your children's children. Joshua stated so clearly in Deuteronomy 30, 19, centuries before, before Paul ever stepped foot in Greece, I set before you on this day life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. Choose it. It should be a life goal for every parent not to pass to our children things they will have to later unlearn. It should be a goal of every parent not to pass to our children the yucky stuff that was passed to us. Because at some point, the chain's got to stop somewhere or we just keep passing it down. Look at something like alcoholism. If you live in one town long enough, you will see it just rages in families until somebody decides they're going to break the chain. Until somebody decides, this stops here, and it stops with me, and it stops now. 
That's where we've got to get. That is taking thou authority over our own lives. Philippians was written to teach Christian people how to have great attitudes, regardless of circumstances. Because if the only time you can have a good attitude is when things are going your way, that's not going to be very often. Can I hear an amen from somebody? How often in life do you have everything going your way? You know, like maybe if you live to be 83 hours, aggregately, I mean, everything going your way. Life's a little bit like golf. Again, golfers out there, golf is a pretty complicated game because there's so many aspects of it. And the tough thing about golf is not doing one thing right. It's getting it all right on the same day. And if you ever do that, man, you have a round of a lifetime, but it doesn't happen very often. When I look at Philippians, the message isn't try harder to have a better attitude. Don't you think it's what we get in our society a lot? Try harder, good luck, kid. You know, you need to try harder. Jesus never told us to try harder. He told us to be born again. And I think what Paul is saying here is you can try harder to have a good attitude and it's not going to work. Or you can grow in Christ and he will transform your attitude. So let's make up some time. Verse 19. For I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. Prayers are not always answered as we wish. I'm sorry if you heard it here first, but God is not Santa in the sky, and we are not children who have been real good. Prayers are not always answered as we wish. Healing does not always arrive as we wish. Deliverance does not always come as we wish. Paul had total confidence that his life would unfold according to God's plan, for he had given all of his life to God. He will either be delivered back to ministry if he's released by the emperor, or he will be delivered through death to heaven if he's executed. With this mindset, it really doesn't matter how things turn out, because Paul is assured that as the church prays for him, that his deliverance will indeed come one way or the other. Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. I want to argue this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the whole Bible. Some Christians read this and offer this paraphrase. If I live for Christ, everything will go my way. Wrong. Wrong. This is a horrible hunk of theology. And it's a horrible way of thinking because it puts us in soul danger. And here's the real problem with it. It will never hold up in real life. If you look historically in America, bad theology gets cycled about every two or three generations. Bad theology that's out there today has been out there before, it gets recycled every two or three generations. And you want to know why it goes away? Because it collapses, because it can't hold up under real life. And then you got to wait till everybody forgets it, and then they sort of reboot it again. 
The idea that if you go to church and if you love God and if you pray and if you give and if you volunteer, everything is going to go your way is a cataclysmic piece of theology. It really is. It's me-centric. And it ignores the reality that we live in a fallen world. And that bad things happen to good people. And that we're all going to die of something. Do you realize that throughout my life, in the early years, we always did prayer cards, prayer requests, and and I would go over them every week. And some weeks, there were this many, and I'd pray through every single one of them until the church got so large, and then people were still expecting sermons, so I had to kind of offload a couple of things. But I would pray over every single one of them. 90% of them were prayers for the improvement or the extension of human life. If that's where 90% of your prayers lie, there will be a day when that prayer is not going to be answered as you wish. Because I got terrible news for you. Things don't improve as you age. They don't. They don't improve as you age. And I got even worse news for you. We're all going to die of something. So if that's where your prayer life is, your last prayer for anybody is not going to be answered if that's where your prayer life lives. What Romans 8.28 means, if I live my life for Christ, if I've given my whole self to him, then everything is going to go God's way. The Greek word translated deliverance denotes an assurance of God's salvation in both time and eternity. What's going to go our way? Our souls belong to God. They belong to God in life and they belong to God in death. And because of that, all things do indeed work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Though Paul sits in a jail awaiting capital trial, he remains sure that no matter how the emperor rules on his case, God will be glorified and his work will press on and the kingdom will come. You want to know what Paul's saying here? No matter how this turns out, it's all good. Because I'm all God's. I'm all God's. One of the most profound pieces of scripture happens in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Daniel. There were three Jewish exiles that uh, we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the story? Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who everybody, all these kings kind of thought they were gods back then. And then you know, if, if you were the biggest God, then, then you had to like build the largest thing to yourself. So he, he built this huge monument to himself, and then he told everybody to worship it, and, and the Jews wouldn't worship it. And then he said, worship and you'll die. A lot of them reconsidered. But Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego didn't. Everybody worshiped this idol, and, and they didn't. And the king was outraged. How dare you not worship me? Can't you see I'm a God? Look at the statue. And finally, they, they were sentenced to be thrown in a fiery furnace. You guys remember the story? They were going to throw them in a fiery furnace. So here they are at the top of the furnace. The fire is so hot, it kills some of the guards. They're just going to pick them up and fire them in. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say this classic line. They said, you can throw us in the fire and our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to serve your God. 
I love that. You want invincible faith? It's found right there. I believe with all my heart that God's healing is going to come in this life. And even if it doesn't, I will still serve God. I believe with all my heart, God will work out the problems in my life. But even if he doesn't, I will still serve God. Even if he doesn't. That's where the power is. That's where the invincibility lies. And what Paul is really saying, helpless and in a prison cell, is because he's saying, I have a mindset rooted in Christ, and I'm invincible. No matter what they do with me, it's all good. It's all good. Verse 20, for I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. How's that, little hard-nosed university? The Greek word that's often translated expect, I fully expect, is used nowhere else in the Bible, and it's quite possible that Paul made it up. And as someone who's not above making up words myself, I have true appreciation for this. He uses a three-storied compound word, and it contains the Greek words meaning to turn away, the head, and to look. So what it literally means is to turn your eyes away from all the distractions for the purpose of intently focusing on a single thing. It's what I would call locking it in. It's what you might call putting on your game face. A soldier in combat. A hunter about to take a shot. A business person closing a deal. An Olympic athlete in the starting blocks. They have to get focused. So focused that everything in their life that isn't this moment must be put aside. Sometimes you just have to take control of your mind. You got to get your eyes off your circumstances and off of yourself, focus on Jesus, and put on your game face. Paul can endure incarceration and an uncertain future because his focus his focus is on these two very specific things. Number one, I hope Never to do anything to cause shame. When my two oldest grandsons were little, Melissa bought them both Daisy Red Rider BB guns. She believes in arming children early, and uh, their little arms couldn't even reach the trigger yet, and they already had Red Rider BB guns. Now, it is a Midwestern rite of passage, and if you don't understand that, there's nothing I can do to help you. But before they could shoot them, they had to attend the great and mighty Papa's gun safety course. The classroom was our kitchen. I told them never to point a gun at anyone. I identified the parts of the gun. We had quizzes over the parts. I demonstrated how to load the gun, and then I moved right to the safety feature. I told the boys to always have the safety on when they are not directly in the process of shooting the gun. Always. And then I held up the gun to demonstrate that a gun cannot fire with the safety on. I pulled the trigger, 
and the gun fired a BB right into our ceiling. It was this kind of moment. It was that. The boys were speechless. They remember it well and don't dare talk about it. Melissa considers it the single greatest moment of her life. <laughs> Paul doesn't want to embarrass the Lord. In the historical general rules of Methodism, we are encouraged to do no harm. Now, Jesus taught the disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Both these ideas grow from hope that our human frailties and weaknesses will not cause embarrassment to us, those we love, or to the Lord. You see, God will forgive us every time we do dumb stuff and when we make horrible decisions and when we fall on our faces or other parts of our bodies, but he appreciates having to do it less and less as we grow in Christ. So does being a Christian make you sinless? No. But should it make you sin less? Yes, it really should. An honest petition would be that we would somehow keep from making a fool of ourselves and not hurt the people we love and not bring dishonor to Jesus or to the church or shoot a BB into your kitchen ceiling. That's always an appropriate prayer. Secondly, and that I will be bold for Christ in life or in death, no matter how this turns out, that I would be bold in Christ. It seems odd that Paul, the most effective witness in the history of the world, would pray for boldness. That's exactly what he does. Maybe that's why he was the greatest witness in the history of the world. Many of you are involved in our 500 initiative, and you're inviting one new person to church every week. And I, I've noticed already, uh, first of all, once you start, it's kind of hard to stop at one. And until you start, it's hard to find one. That's what I've noticed. You tend to get on a run or just strike out is sort of what I noticed. But the other thing I've really noticed is that you just kind of have to pray sometimes for boldness. Because there's always that Saturday and you haven't done it yet. And you really need to get rid of this thing. And... And going down the road and throwing one out of your car at 60 miles an hour, hoping it finds the right person, is kind of weak sauce. And, and you realize that. But that boldness is something that's good to pray for. And I know a lot of you really stepped out of your comfort zones to do that. But sometimes we wonder, are we making a difference? Do these 500, now we're at 575 invitations a week that we're offering. Do they really make a difference? I can tell you this. Compared to live attendance, Easter last year, okay? Easter last year compared to Easter this year. Live attendance. We had 769 more people this year. Think about that. That is a really nice full 9.30 worship service on a Sunday. 769 new people. And guess why people come? Because you invited them. Do they all come? No. I'm about two for 10. And before Sunday, I was 0 for 10. 
two showed up, so both surprised me. So, you know, if you're thinking, wow, I'm not doing very good, let me tell you, the old dude up here is not exactly batting 800 either, but I'm out there making my invitations. And of course, I tell nobody who I am. It's not important. I'm just inviting people like you are. But it's, it's kind of an interesting thing, but it makes a difference. So if you get a little gun shy, if you will, pray for boldness. Paul prayed for boldness. He's the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. Paul was in prison facing a trial that would eventually result in the separation of he and his head, of which I'm sure he was quite fond. The pressure of this upcoming trial would be intense and unrelenting. Have you ever lived in an absolute pressure cooker for a period of time? An absolute pressure cooker. That's where he is. He wrote this from a pressure cooker. And he prayed for boldness that if this was the end of his race, he wanted to make sure he finished well. He wanted to make sure he finished well. Ralph Philippi was the pastor of visitation when I arrived at Christ Church in July of 1997. How many of you actually knew Ralph? When I met Ralph, he was 72 years old. It seemed much older then. The first time we had lunch, he scribbled on a napkin, and I believe it was a cloth napkin. He got a pen out, and he scribbled something on a cloth napkin, and he pushed it across the table to me. I looked at it, and he said, this is my resignation. And I, I said, you know, is the, the four minutes we've been working together has already kind of discouraged you? He said, nah. He said, I don't want you to feel like you're stuck with me. I said, well, if you don't mind, sir, just shove that napkin in your pocket, and if I ever need it, I'll yell. He said, all right. So he shoved the napkin in his pocket, and I never needed it. Ralph became a mentor and a dear friend to me. Uh, my dad didn't live around here back then, and I've always been a person that kind of needed that father kind of figure in my life. I'm better with it. And Ralph became that when my dad was still working and lived elsewhere. He kind of became that. We had lunch 200 times a year, 200 times a year. We ate lunch together all of the time until 2005. 2005 was a really bad year. And Christ Church decided to focus a part of our international ministry in San Pedro Sula, Honduras. I was really excited. My dad had been an integral part of a mighty movement of God there. The city was sort of in my blood. Craig and I and a few other guys made a trip down there when we were probably in our early to mid-20s. After making a couple of prior trips with No Greater Love Ministries, April of 2005 kind of marked our official Christ Church mission trip to Honduras. In the weeks leading up to our departure... Ralph informed me that he wanted to join the expedition, but I was less than enthusiastic. And if you want to know why, it's because of this. 
Ralph was really, really skilled. Anything you can do with your hands, he was really good at it. But Ralph had no fear, and he was partially nuts. So we did a hurricane relief thing. There was a tornado. It was a tornado that blew through. We were cleaning up someone's yard that had had a tornado rip through. I looked about 20 feet up a tree, and Ralph was probably 74 by then, had one foot here, one foot here, holding a limb, and had a chainsaw like this 20 feet up in the air. And I guess when he told me he wanted to go to Honduras, I just sort of had a flashback like the old show Kung Fu when he kind of throws back a grasshopper. And, and I just thought, Ralph, no way, man. There's no way you should go on, on this trip. There, there's just absolutely no way at all. His face turned red and his ears turned purple as Ralph could do. And it was the only time I ever met Ralph that he's mad at me. And he said, and I quote, I didn't need a mother before I met you, and I don't need one now. <laughs> so with perfunctory due diligence now out of the way and completely exhausted, I asked Ralph, well, do you know any Spanish? And he smiled at me, and he said, adios and gratchets. <laughs> Perfect. I had a roommate. About halfway through the trip, was, was anybody with us on that trip that's here tonight? Okay. Our team split into a medical mission traveling to Tela on the coast and a construction crew to stay in San Pedro Sula to prepare the roof of a church. Uh, I opted for the medical mission and I encouraged Ralph to come with me. <laughs> and Ralph refused. This is what he said. I wrote it down. He said, I know how to do carpentry. And if I were on the medical mission, I would be as useless as you're going to be. <laughs> I wrote it down. <laughs> it's <was> awesome. <laughs> uh, it was hard to argue on that one, man. I'd go on medical missions, and, and I would take at least one person I was talking to out of play on every single mission. You know, adding me subtracted someone else. It was horrible. Uh, well, finishing up a worship service that I had preached in Taylor with a group of people who didn't even speak Spanish. It was really interesting. Uh, I had an interpreter. I finished up the worship service, and a courier arrived. Got out, walked up to an interpreter, and informed us that Ralph had fallen off the roof of the church. He'd fallen about 20 feet. He landed on uh, some concrete that they were mixing, and then they just let it get hard and hadn't busted it up and hauled it out yet. And uh, he was in a coma, and he had suffered... Very serious head injuries. Jim McIsaac, Christine Kirchhoff, and I jumped on a packed public bus that would rival the worst school bus you've ever been on. Might have been 
the school bus you were on as a child. It was at least 120 degrees on that bus. And we made the miserable two-hour trip from the coast into the city. Got to the hospital expecting Ralph to be okay. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) He wasn't okay at all. To make a long story and a painful story mercifully short, um, we all had to come home, and there was no way to get a man in a coma home. We didn't have money to get him home. We did a fundraiser. We raised, I believe, $20,000 to uh, get an airplane with medical stuff and get Ralph back to the States. After coming out of the coma, showing some signs of partial recovery, Ralph died a few months later. The depth of pain that his injury and subsequent death brought to Christ Church at a time we were just beginning to get our footing is immeasurable. Words cannot describe how much I miss Ralph. Still. Still. He always wanted to eat at Fazoli's. He, he always wanted to eat at Fazoli's. And it was years after he died before I went back to Fazoli's. And I didn't know why. And one day, we were driving by, and I said to somebody, I haven't been there in years. I haven't been there since me. And Ralph used to go. For the next decade, I would regularly run into pastors at Methodist meetings who knew Ralph. And they would always inquire if Ralph was still alive. Always. And when I responded no, they always asked, how did he die? And I would pause, and I would gain my composure, and I simply replied, he died really well. Ralph died the way he lived, with his boots on, serving people that didn't look like him, serving people who couldn't understand a thing Ralph said, and he couldn't understand a thing they said, but he was a human being who loved Jesus, who had the ability to help, and he did. We should all die so well. Verse 21. For to me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. Dying well was Paul's prayer. And dying well should be each of our prayers. I think the best way to ensure we will die well is to make sure that we live well. We don't know 
when we will die. And we don't know how we will die. The choice is how shall we live? We've got a lot to say into that. And when we choose to have good attitudes, when we choose to put on the mind of Christ, we will find that life is really, really good. And we will also find, much to our surprise, that death is even better.